Good morning, St. Clair. It's very good to be with you. As Doug mentioned, we are in the upper room of Ryerson, which uh, of course has biblical allusions, though I uh, would imagine the disciples weren't dealing with this paint color. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> uh, we, we're just really thankful that again and again, week in and week out, we have creative ways to be able to gather together, gather um, to to know that God is near us and he is for us. We hope that this morning comes as an encouragement to you. John, first John as the words were read for us uh, by Doug, says that this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. That John, the one whom he who declared himself as the one whom Jesus loved, the writer of these letters, the writer of the book of Revelation. You know, he, we looked last week at his opening words. It said, the one that we've seen and heard and touched with our very own hands and with our very own eyes, the eternal life, the invisible that has become visible, the life of all lives. We've seen it. We were witness to it. And now here's what you need to know to make my joy complete. That's the setup that John is offering to his listeners here. So if you, if you didn't know what was coming next and what John was going to say in this letter, when he's saying, okay, because of all this, I'm now going to declare this message to you, what, what do you think he would say? Of all the ways that he could describe God and what God is like, for he has seen God and touched God with his, with his own life. He declares that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. That this isn't just like a noble idea. It is an amazing reality. That God is light. He's not just the brightest light that there is, you know, being less dark relative to other things. No, he's saying God is light. And nothing but light. So maybe just actually rest in that thought for a moment. Even just kind of relax into thinking about what it is for God to be light, pure light. Just think of even the warmth of sun coming on your face and the refreshment that comes with just being in the light. I think that's the kind of nearness of God that John is speaking to. That in him, there's no darkness at all, no coldness. Like a fire, God is heat and light, both warming and illuminating. His very presence melts away the cold and reveals the darkness. Like the, like the sun, I think every morning, darkness is just being chased out. It can help but flee from being the presence of light. I hope not to give a science lesson because that's as far as I can go on it. Light and dark cannot coexist. God is light. His light never fades. In him is life and it is bright and full to the fullest degree. We often quote Chesterton because he's brilliant at articulating and crafting some of these nuanced realities. And this is the, I love the way he describes the nature of who God is. He says, it is possible that God says every morning, 
do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. He may not, it may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. That, that's, uh, well, it's mind-blowing, uh, but I think it's brilliant. And John is making clear for us the reality of who God is. His character, his nature is one that just will not fade. And as we're reading through 1 John and we're spending our next bunch of weeks in this letter, I think it actually helps us to kind of put our head down and look at uh, a lot of the word wording and a lot of the language that John is using to describe some of these big realities. And you may notice in the reading, uh, this declaration of the nature of who God is, there's a whole bunch of if statements that are kind of intertwined in what John's describing. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we walk in the light, if we claim to be without sin, if we confess our sins, if we claim we have not sinned, this passage, like most of the book of 1 John, I think can actually start to be confusing when we look really closely at it and we try to piece it together with our own experience of our own life. Now, I'm going to suggest that we might not actually kind of get it on the first go around, that it may actually require multiple readings and a continued meditating on to let it digest, to actually understand some of what is being talked about. I actually think that's true of most of scripture, that it requires patient reflection so that it seeds can find root in our life. And this, special, this passage especially, I think, can be a bit of a teacher for us in this. It seems that there's a lot of conditional statements in this first few words for John. They would be easy to misread and hear those conditional statements and assume that God himself is conditional. That God will only love me if I don't sin or uh, if I sin, he won't accept me. But John here is actually really clear to say the issue is not a matter of whether or not, you know, if we're going to sin. It's actually just about when we're going to sin. It's a given that sin is going to happen. It's, it's, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive. And John goes on to say, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, it's, it's just, it's, for me, I think it captures a bit of the sense of what we saw Jesus in the gospels when he would not condemn the woman who was caught in adultery of her sin. Yet at the same time, he said to her, okay, go and sin no more. There's sort of this, this paradox that we are living within that I think John is, is speaking to. John's longing is that we learn to walk in the light as he is in the light, that our lives would not be lived in darkness. 
but maybe it helps us to name a little bit more what we're talking about with darkness and what scripture calls sin. Martin Luther describes sin as being humanity curved in on itself. I think that's really good. Sin, as Jesus reminds us in the Gospels, is an issue of the heart. It's this, it's this act of turning away. Where John speaks about being in the light, and that brings fellowship and being known by God and known with others and brings us near to one another. Sin is this darkness that festers and it isolates and it distances us from God and from each other. It splits our heart and makes us divided people. We become divided within ourselves. We become divided with God. We become divided with one another. We become divided with the world. There's sort of these gaps that start to happen when sin enters the picture. It separates our words from our actions. It creates a gap between our desire and our will. And then we end up living this really fractured reality that we are not as we should be. And it is with great simplicity that God is working to repair those splits, those divides of our life, to mend our heart where it is broken, to weave together the fractured and scattered pieces of who we are, to make us whole so that he can make his dwelling there, that in our hearts the presence of God can take up residence, that the light can find its place and be welcomed in, that we could be declared as good because we are made in the image of God and growing in his likeness. God offers himself as a rescue from the inevitable darkness that happens in our life and in this world. And he's working to merge our life into his and his life into ours. And that forgiveness of sins, which is a term that's used all throughout scripture, it brings integrity. It brings wholeness. It brings wholeheartedness, union with ourselves and with God and with each other in the world. I think so often our, our, our sin is actually about looking for the right thing in the wrong places. John Orberg would say it to say sin is often the attempt to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And uh, some of you may know, Jeremiah 17 uh, offers this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And I think what is helpful about Jeremiah's words is that it's speaking to this complex mystery of our own hearts. That in many ways, I think our heart is just, it's guilty of being, it's guilty of duplicity that we constantly are, are split and divided. We can never quite figure ourselves out. And we're divided in what we actually want. The heart, our hearts are inclined towards good things and we need to learn to be able to trust our hearts, but they also need to be watched closely and inspected because often the motives of our heart, I think can be suspicious. And it's in the very next First, that Jeremiah says, uh, he's, the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. And it's that 
That's repeated elsewhere in scripture as well. God graciously comes and reveals his light into the mystery and the complexity of our own inner lives. To what is dark and clouded, what's perverse or misunderstood, he searches us because he is our maker and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he is, he's not going to be surprised or jarred by what he finds there. But in love, by his light, he will allow us to see what he sees. It's our propensity to sin that wants us to turn away and convince ourselves that God, too, has turned away. But God's light is relentless. It never fades. And so he refuses to turn away from us. As Chesterton said, for we have sinned and grown old, but our father is younger than we it's not very fashionable to talk about sin. It's not like the thing that you woke up waiting, longing to hear about on, on this Sunday. And it's even, it can be a bit of a thing these days in church, or perhaps depending on your church experience. Sin might be a word that isn't mentioned as much these days because, well, we just don't quite know how to deal with it. And I think it, it makes some sense in light of the culture that we live in and just the times that uh, we're a part of. I heard Tim Keller make this comment, and I thought it was very insightful. He said, in this current cultural moment, the pervading value of our day is to hold that the only sin is to say that there is sin, and that the only thing we need saving from is the need to be saved. And that's just, that's just kind of the water that we swim in. So how do we, the church, the people of God, make sense of this notion of sin? Especially to a world where the idea of sin is, I think, a threat to the limitless possibilities of human potential. We think we can fix the world, but the reality is we can't even figure out ourselves. And I, I mean, if you spend any time online, I don't think it takes long to be able to see how cancel culture today reveals so much about just how confused we are about morality. That you have the right, uh, you know, uh, that I have the right to tell someone else what they're doing is wrong, but no one has the right to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. There's, there's just this wonky disconnect that we're seeing play out all the time. I heard David Brooks, he's a New York Times columnist, um, make a comment that I, I thought was quite good. He said, uh, what we're seeing so often to the, these days is that we are over-politicized and under-moralized. And that is our sense of good and bad and right and wrong always seems to have an agenda to it. And it just is actually distorting our sense of what is actually real. And I wonder if maybe more than we would like to admit or more than I would like to admit is that privilege actually has more to do with sin than, than we think. We don't like the idea of sin or the omission of sin being personal because it disrupts our ability to craft the perfect life. It's a serious hurdle in having the life that we want or maybe perhaps the life that we think we are owed. I think the marginalized in our own neighborhood and our society, the, even the global poor, feel the effects of institutional sin what scripture calls the powers and principalities, the establishments 
that exploit and dehumanize. It was earlier this year, Luke and Amila, on behalf of Arasha, shared with us on a Sunday gathering about how the poor, it is the poor who bear the brunt of unfair systems that are monopolizing the world. And I think we have to name our place in that. Our privilege allows us to pick and choose our discomforts and mask the real effects of our choices. This is the nature of sin. It hides, it distorts, and it divides. Privilege brings a sense of entitlement, which cannot coexist with the need for forgiveness. Because entitlement is about the sense of being owed something. And to square up with our sin means that we realize we're the ones that owe something. And this is, the more I've been reflecting on this, I think this is why those who struggle with addiction have something really important to teach us on this. Because they are people who have felt the very real sting of their own sin, the great divide between their will and desire and their inability to master or wipe out their own compulsions or the consequences of it. The veneer for them has been worn off as they are dealing with life in very raw terms. And they know their need for forgiveness and therefore become amazing recipients of grace. They are beatitude people. The kingdom of God is near to those who know their own frailty, who are poor and hungry. And many of us, I will put myself at the front of this line, have something to learn from them. Those in our community and and even those listening who are kind of eavesdropping into our community, uh, who have struggled with addiction, this is something I was just chewing on some more this week. Um, I felt like it, it was important to apologize to say that I think often we make church a place that's, that's really soft on sin while you feel the harshness of it. And that we don't always do well to speak to just the reality of how it is felt in our lives. And that you are looking around and you're wondering, am I the only one? And it's, you have good reason to be hesitant, to be honest or transparent or real or left wondering if just you're the only one who doesn't have their stuff together. I think we all need to be braver in naming our sin. So this is where I think confession comes in. Think, reflect on your own life. Think maybe it comes quick or maybe it'll it'll take a bit to jog your memory. But recall a time where you had to confess something. I could think of a few and I could offer some humiliating examples. But as I thought about different times in my life where I have needed to confess, I realized that what was taking place in those moments and the difficulty of confession actually became less, it was less about the degree of wrongness of a particular action. For me, it became more about the betrayal of the relationship that was affected by the actions. And the confession, the fear of confession was this fear of isolation and distance and abandonment. You know, if I say this, if I admit it, if I confess it, will I still be loved? Will I still be accepted? And John's answer for us in this is a resounding yes, without a doubt. 
For God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And Paul offers similar words in Ephesians. I think are really helpful too. This is Ephesians 5. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And he says, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. But in every, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Confession is a very necessary act of bringing our life into the light. It brings to light that maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was, or as good as I want to believe, and it forces me to trust that God is really as good as he says he is. And it also relieves us from being swallowed up by the lies that we are worse than we are and that we are totally unlovable. Confession brings us into the light to see things as they really are, that we are beloved children of God made in his image, whom God went to the greatest lengths to bring our lives into the light, into himself, that we would find home in him and not be left alone. I'm going to offer us a prayer that I would like you to be able to kind of respond with me in. Uh, and as I thought about light and what it is for our life to be in the light of God, um, I don't know if you have this particularity like me, but uh, I use my computer most days and uh, most of the time during the day. And I like to keep my computer clean. I'm, I'm a little nitpicky about uh, not getting crumbs in it or dust or whatever. Uh, I like to keep it clean. And most of the time, I actually think it is really clean because I'm using it. I can see it. I'm right close to it. Like, yeah, it's right there. It looks good. And then there's the odd moment where instead of using my computer under some artificial light, uh, my computer sort of gets like a, a, a ray of sunlight. And then all of a sudden, I see my screen for what it is. And I realize it's covered in smudge marks. And it's a layer of dust. And it is totally filthy. And I immediately am like, what? I've been living under that condition? Like, that's been the reality of my computer? And immediately, I have to clean it. I just, it, life cannot go on until that is made right. And I, I just wonder. I wonder how much we keep ourselves from letting our lives just be in the light of God's presence. Because perhaps we don't want to see what is really there. We're a little scared at how messy things would be if we actually take an honest look at our life. And ultimately, I think we're scared that if we're honest about our life, whether God will really actually love us and accept us. Much of our sin is looking for the right thing in wrong places. And I've, I hear Anne Lamont's words, who said that most of her pain is about the avoidance of her pain. If you follow that, that most of her pain is about the avoidance of her pain. That she, she, what she characterized that was so helpful for me was creating a life of avoidance and escape because there are painful things to deal with, just ends up multiplying the pain in new way and other creative ways. And I think God calling us home, that our life would be in the light, 
is a place of healing. And he wants to restore and repair. And he wants to rescue us from the pain that we keep creating for ourselves. And I can see it in my own life as I think about patterns of sin where I've felt an immense amount of guilt and shame and I've just wrestled with my inability to master myself. I've realized that as that pattern has played out, that so often I get to this place, this scary edge of God feeling pretty close, but I'm not sure if I want to go any closer because if I get there, I'm going to feel pretty naked and pretty vulnerable, and that's an intimate place. I don't know if I want God to see me like that, so I'm going to run away. I'm going to grab something, kind of make a little dumpster fire and prove to God hey, look, 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 I'm a mess. I'm not lovable. You can't love me. And I'm trying to convince myself that I'm not acceptable to God. And I think a lot of us get stuck in these patterns of avoidance. And it could be with big sins and it could be with little sins. Scripture says there's there's both. Not all sin is equal. Some stuff has serious consequence and some has minimal consequences. But at the root, something is happening. God is calling us home. And confession is a way of naming that thing that is keeping us from him. We expose it. We bring it into the light. And we let the heat of God's kindness melt away the coldness and the isolation that we feel. So here's the prayer that I would like you to participate with me in. That Jeremiah passage talked about how God searches the mind and the heart I'm going to read for us, this is um, one that, that I would have just by memory because it's a constant prayer for me, is the last couple verses of Psalm 139. It is this posture of opening ourselves to the presence of God and letting him do the work of examining our life. I'm going to read for us just a couple verses of Psalm 139 as a guide. Then I'm going to leave some space that you could let God speak in this moment. Perhaps he already has. But if that's too sort of general of a spot to even know, where do I start, you know, in thinking about letting God examine my life, I'm going to offer a few questions. And these questions come from John Wesley's 22 questions, which is what shapes uh, our prayer groups. It's this act of confession in these groups every week as they meet We'll read through a list of 22 questions, and I've just picked out a few of them for us. But it is this wonderful uh, kind of 100% way of of having to bring ourselves before God without really any hesitation or reservation. So if it's helpful to you, you could posture yourself in a way of of being attentive. Um, Perhaps that's sitting up straight. Uh, Maybe it's putting your hands out. Um, I don't know, maybe it's being on your knees. Um, but would you, would you follow me in this? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive weight in me. 
and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me offer these few questions. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Do I pray about the money I spend? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, or hold a resentment toward or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble or complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? God, may your light and your heat come near that you would reveal to us the places of our own heart that are out of sync. And would you bring us home? Amen.